We read the Word of God tonight in Proverbs 23. When thou sittest to eat with a ruler, consider diligently what is before thee, and put a knife to thy throat, if thou be a man given to appetite. Be not desirous of his dainties, for they are deceitful meat. Labor not to be rich, cease from thine own wisdom. Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings, they fly away as an eagle toward heaven. Eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil eye, neither desire thou his dainty meats. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. The morsel which thou hast eaten shalt thou vomit up and lose thy sweet words. Speak not in the ears of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of thy words. Remove not the old landmark, and enter not into the fields of the fatherless. For their Redeemer is mighty, he shall plead their cause with thee. Apply thine heart unto instruction, and thine ears to the words of knowledge. Withhold not correction from the child, for if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. Thou shalt beat him with the rod, and shalt deliver his soul from hell. My son, if thine heart be wise, my heart shall rejoice, even mine. Yea, my reins shall rejoice when thy lips speak right things. Let not thine heart envy sinners, but be thou in the fear of the Lord all the day long. For surely there is an end, and thine expectation shall not be cut off. Hear thou, my son, and be wise, and guide thine heart in the way. Be not among wine-bibbers, among riotous eaters of flesh, for the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty, and drowsiness shall clothe a man with rags. Hearken unto thy father that begat thee, and despise not thy mother when she is old. Buy the truth, and sell it not, also wisdom, and instruction, and understanding. The father of the righteous shall greatly rejoice, and he that begetteth a wise child shall have joy of him. Thy father and thy mother shall be glad, and she that bear thee shall rejoice. My son, give me thine heart, and let thine eyes observe my ways. For a whore is a deep ditch, and a strange woman is a narrow pit. She also lieth in wait as for a prey, and increaseth the transgressors among men. And now this verse to the end of the chapter is our text tonight. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. At the last it biteth like a serpent, and stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. This far, we read the Word of God. Beloved saints of Jesus Christ, there are many spiritual dangers in the world around. And the child of God, as he strives or she strives to live an antithetical life, to be distinct from the world in every area of life, has many things to guard against, many sins regarding which he or she prays, lead me not into temptation. And yet, both in this chapter and in throughout the scriptures, 
the Word of God warns against two, particularly wine and women. That is, ungodly women or an ungodly man and a desire for unlawful sexual relations with such a woman or such a man and wine. You say, now, are those just simply two dangers among many, or is there some connection between the two? And you find in the Scriptures, especially the chapter we read, that they're spoken of in context together. Earlier in the chapter, we were told not to be among wine-bibbers, among riotous eaters of the flesh, for the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty. And then we're reminded to observe and to beware of a whore and a strange woman. So there's the previous context. And then immediately after the warning about strange women, that is against ungodly women and those with whom one could enjoy illicit sexual activity, is the warning of the text against drunkenness. And within the text and its warning against drunkenness comes another reminder, one of the effects of drunkenness, not one we want, is that thine eyes shall behold strange women. There is, according to the Holy Spirit then, a connection, a relationship between these two sins. You and I tonight need the warning that the text gives us. We do so in the first place because the society in which we live looks and holds up these two things as the essence of a happy life. The essence of what a weekend's activities should involve. You go to work tomorrow, and if those with whom you work are among the unbelieving members of the world, you might hear from them and Though preferring not to, they might gladly tell you anyway about their wine and their women, the sins in which they indulged. And this is the society in which we live. We, young people to old alike, must understand that the sins in which the world revels are sins against which we must guard. In the second place, All the more is it our calling to guard against these sins because of who we are. Children of God, redeemed by the blood of Christ, indwelt by His regenerating and sanctifying Spirit. And is it evident in how we live? Is it evident In what we choose to do and choose not to do? Is it evident in what we will drink and what we will not drink? Or to what degree that Christ lives in us? Or is that not our concern? Is the fact that Christ lives in us a a doctrine that we know will say it, will come to church to hear it, but it makes no difference in how we live? Then, of course, if that's the case that it makes no difference in how we live, we have to ask, but is it really true then of me? Does Christ live in me? Does He reign in my heart? And the third place, the reason why we must hear and heed the warning and take it to heart is that the deceptiveness of the devil includes convincing you and me that this danger we can handle. So that may be a young person in the congregation among the covenant people of God says, yes, I know it's wrong. Someday I won't do it anymore, but I'm going to try it now. There's something about it. Everyone's doing it. There must be something about it that's good. At least I'm going to find out for myself. I won't let God tell me how to live. I will find out for myself. And if there's a danger involved, I can handle it. I can control it. Is that your attitude? Young people and young adults? And 
mothers and fathers and grandparents and older members of the church, are you reminding your children that sin is not the sort of thing we can control and handle? It's not the sort of thing we see how close we can get to without being burned, but it's the sort of thing we stay as far away from as we can. But in our circles, in which the Lord has blessed us with many godly young people, there is also this temptation. And as the young people get together sometimes, it's this temptation to whine and to women that comes out and even is given into. We need the warning of the text. Now, the wise among us are going to hear it and take it to heart. I say it that way, first of all, to put our text in the context of the book of Proverbs in which it's found. The book of Proverbs is about wisdom, not a wisdom that you and I have by nature, a wisdom which is from above and a gift of the wise God and who displays his wisdom in Jesus Christ. So you go to Proverbs 8, the very heart of the book, and you see Christ called wisdom and described as one who dwelt by God from all eternity. This Christ becomes ours. The wise, therefore, those in whom Christ lives and dwells, will hear. And that's part of the gospel of the text. But as part then of the warning or the threat and the admonition of the gospel, the one who leaves tonight and says, no, I haven't changed my mind. I'm going to still give it a try. Or I'm going to still find my happiness in this intoxicating substance. Such a one is not wise. The Holy Spirit in our text, more than any other place in the Scripture in which this sin is addressed, presents the matter very graphically. The seven verses that comprise our text describe as it were a scene, and they put it vividly before your face and before mine. There is a person who's stumbling. He can't walk straight. He bangs into things. He gets bruises. He gets wounds. He gets broken bones and broken arms. And he says, somebody did this to me. I don't know who it was. I don't remember where it was. But somebody did this to me. You say to him, that's quite a, fast, that's quite a story. Somebody did that to you and you don't remember where and who and how? That's quite a story. I wonder, my brother or sister, if you are not a habitual drunkard. And the text, the Holy Spirit in the text, presents such a man so graphically that you simply have to see the folly of drunkenness. I call your attention to the text under the theme, the drunkard's folly. Notice first, he's filled with wine. That's an explanation of the drunkard, the man of whom the text is speaking. Secondly, he's deceived by wine. That's his folly. And third of all, why does the Holy Spirit tell us this? He admonishes us to wisdom. There's a lesson here that you and I must take to heart. So we're going to see in the first place that the text is speaking of one who is a drunkard or a wine-bibber. Not merely one who has a drink, <clears throat> but one who drinks to excess and becomes intoxicated. Whether it's a one-time thing or a habitual thing, of that one the text is speaking. In the first place, that's clear from the answer to the many questions in verse 29, six questions in verse 29, the answer in verse 30 to them being, they that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. The text is not describing a man who comes home from a hard day's work out at the construction site on a hot summer day, and he says, a beer sounds good, that would be refreshing. And he sits down to his meal, he drinks 
his beer, he eats his food, and at the end of the meal, he leads the family in devotions. At the end, he praises God and thanks God for the gifts, including food and drink God has given, and then he gets up and leaves the table and goes about some activity. Such a one has not tarried long at the wine. But the text is, is describing a man who once he sits down to the table can never get up again throughout the evening. And it isn't the food that he needs to keep eating. It's that glass. It's that bottle. It's that can. Which either keeps getting replenished or getting replaced with another like one. He's tarrying long at the wine. And when he runs out, because he does from time to time, he goes to seek. And what he goes to seek is the best. There's two things about drunkenness. Excess of quantity and, to a greater or lesser degree with people, an insistence on quality. And so when he goes to seek more, he doesn't just say, well, there's an economic purchase. It will do the job. He says, no, it has to be this kind. I have a standard I've got to meet. And so he goes to seek. He's on the hunt for and what he's seeking is mixed wine. Mixed wine is not any worse than wine. It's not any more off-limits than wine, per se. It's simply wine mixed with honey and spices. But in excess, it is as dangerous as unmixed wine. So this, in the first place, shows that the text is speaking of a drunkard. He is one who tarries long. In the second place, there are those symptoms of drunkenness of which verse 29 speaks in the form of the six questions. Who hath woe and who hath sorrow? Young people, anyone who ever tells you that to get drunk is fun, that there is in it some happiness, has not read and does not understand this verse. This verse says, who hath woe who hath sorrow? Who is the one who's moaning and groaning as though every muscle in his body aches and every bone hurts? That's a drunkard. You convince yourself that there's some happiness in it, that it will take your anxieties away, will take away all of life's problems. Oh no, you might not know it, but out of your mouth come the moans and the groans that express something else. A babbling, who hath babbling, an anxiety, a giving vent to the real troubles of my heart. Intoxicating beverages don't take away the anxiety, which is often the reason why somebody turns to them and attempt to deal with anxiety. They don't take away that anxiety. They only loosen up your tongue so that you're speaking of it left and right to everyone who listens and to many who would rather not listen. And then I skipped over one of the questions, who hath contentions? Who is ready at a moment's notice, because I said the wrong word, to go to blows and to fists? Who is going to get into an argument and a fight without thinking twice about it? It's a drunk person. And maybe many of us when not intoxicated, have to fight that tendency in our nature. But then, so soon as we are intoxicated, the fight is over, and we'll do it readily and at a moment's notice. Who hath wounds without cause? Who stumbles and falls and runs into things and bruises himself and breaks bones and says, I don't know how? Who hath redness of eyes? Who has the dull look about the eyes that indicates that drink takes over one. The answer is one who not just drinks wine, but one who tarries long at the wine. The text is speaking of a drunkard. Having established that the text is speaking of a drunkard, this question arises. Why is it such a sin? What's the big deal? 
text doesn't answer that question in so many words, but what's assumed in the text is it is a big deal. It is folly. It leads to bad things. But is that all we're talking about? It leads to bad things? Is it the bad things it leads to that's the problem? Or is there some inherent problem in drunkenness itself? And the answer is the latter, yes. But I'm going to bring you to a New Testament passage to explain this point. And the New Testament passage is Ephesians 5, verse 18. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. This in a section of the epistle to the Ephesians, in which the Holy Spirit is calling the saints at Ephesus to the living of a godly life, the manifesting of the holiness of the church that Christ has worked in them. Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. That passage contrasts drunkenness with a sanctified life. And it does so and can do so because there is one thing about wine and the Spirit that they have in common. But though they have this one thing in common, this one thing when filled with wine leads you in this direction and this one thing when filled with the Spirit leads you in that direction. They are antithetical to each other. What do they have in common? Both wine and the Spirit Fill a man or a person. They are influences. They are things, the Holy Spirit, not just a thing, but a person, the third person of the Trinity, that bring you under their influence, that live and dwell in you, that cause you to act in a certain way. That's what they have in common. And therefore, they are antithetical because one is God and the other is an earthly substance. Antithetical in this respect, when you are filled with the one, you cannot live out of the power of the other. When you are filled with the Spirit, you will not live out of the influence of wine. When you are filled with wine, you will not live out of the power and influence of the Holy Spirit. They are antithetical influences. The point, let me be clear about this, the point of Ephesians 5.18 is not that no child of God with the regenerating, sanctifying spirit in him could ever possibly commit the sin for many children of God have and we think already of Noah. The sin among the covenant people of God is ancient and long-standing. But the point is this. That if you're a child of God regenerated by the Spirit and you are filled with wine, you are not living right at that moment out of regenerating power. I'm sorry, I meant the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. So what would it be, young people? And what will it be, congregation of Jesus Christ? You want to give the world every reason to think you're really one of them? Then why did you go to church on Sunday? Do you want to give the world a reason to think that you're going to church on Sunday was a necessary part of your sanctify, uh, sanctification and your growth? that in the week ahead you're going to live out of the power of that word that you received and to the glory of that God who saved you, then do not be filled with wine. Here, therefore, is a verse that underscores that to be drunk, not just what you do while drunk, but to be drunk is sin. For every time we live out of the flesh, out of the old man, which one does when he's filled with wine, he is embarking on a sinful path, but more than embarking on a sinful path, he's taken over by the power of sin. Let us live to the praise, the honor, and the glory of God. Because drunkenness itself is sin. Not just what one does while drunk, but drunkenness itself 
you will notice that although there are examples in the Scriptures of holy men who were at one point drunk, Noah, etc., your Lord Jesus Christ was never drunk. On the one hand, I point this out because the Pharisees accused him of it. Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber. He was eating with the sort of people you wouldn't catch a Pharisee eating with. Publicans, sinners, harlots. It must be, say the Pharisees, that there's something about the heart of the man. He must be given over to all these evils because of the nature of the man he is. They get the point of Ephesians 5.18, even though that's not written yet. They get the point that you're either living out of the power of the Spirit or out of the power of the, of the, of, of the old man. And they also get the point that the company you keep will either help you live out of the power of the Spirit or bring you with them into living out of the power of the old man. They get all those points and they accuse our Lord of being a man who is a glutton and a wine-bibber. But he wasn't. That was a slanderous charge on their part. And you know why that matters? That our Lord was never drunk? That always he gave himself to do the will of his Father? Here's why it matters. Our Savior is perfectly righteous. And had he so much as once said to himself, just once, everyone gets to do it just once, there would be no heaven for you. There would be no Holy Spirit for us. There would be no new man. There would be only hell. He didn't do it even once. And now behold him and be like him in the power he gives. To bring this first point to a conclusion, I want to show how the text applies on three levels, because although the text clearly is speaking of one who is drunk, it might be that people in the congregation say, well, then that's not me. This is going to be a neat sermon for somebody else, but it's just, for me, there's not much there. So... I'm going to say that the principle of the text applies far more broadly than to the specific matter of drunkenness and intoxicating beverage. It implies to any substance that intoxicates, not just wine and beer and liquor. So what other substances might and do intoxicate? Well, I'm going to include in the list prescription drugs, when not used as prescribed. I'm going to include in the list narcotics and street drugs and hard drugs which even the world recognizes to be so harmful and dangerous that it outlaws. And then I'm going to include in the list marijuana. And the warning here is timely. It wasn't so long ago that what the state of Michigan once had outlawed, it now no longer outlaws. That is, it permits you to grow it and to have it up to and within a certain limit. And the children of the church who grow up in this society are going to grow up in a time and age when it was always legal. The older among us will remember it wasn't. But the younger will say, it. but it's legal. And then there comes the question, if now it's legal, does that mean that it's good? And the Holy Spirit says in our text, oh no, it's not. And the young person says, but you go find me a passage that says, thou shalt not smoke marijuana. And we have that right here in our text. If you take the principle of the text and apply it, if alcoholic beverages drunk in excess 
will affect the mind and the heart, the more quickly does one joint affect one's mind and one's judgment. You cannot deny that it's even more dangerous than alcohol. And then there's one more level of application in the text because it might still be that in the congregation are perhaps many, God be praised if the number is many, who say, none of that is a danger for me. And I want everyone here to see that there's a principle in the text, especially one we'll come to later in the second point, that speaks to every one of us regarding our besetting sins and sinful natures and forces us to ask, honestly face this question, do you see its folly? Do you see its destructiveness? Do you hate it? Do you seek grace to turn from it? The text in its principle applies to all. Let's see now what the deceitfulness of wine is in the second point. And now we've got to work our way through the text from verses 30 and following more closely. In the first place, the deceitfulness of wine regards the earthly properties of the wine. What is there about wine that is deceptive? It's what wine looks like and how it tastes. And that's verse 31. Look thou not upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. At the outset, I'm going to make this disclaimer or this statement. The exact translation of each individual phrase is not always easy. This is Hebrew poetry. And I am not going to suggest that our King James doesn't give a good translation. It does. And yet there's times when you say, but what's the meaning here? What's the real idea behind the translation? What you're going to hear is Prof. Kuyper's answer. And if ever you hear another man give a slightly different bent, that may well be. What Prof. Kuyper's going to say is that verse 31 is speaking of the earthly properties of wine as being deceptive, for it looks so beautiful. It is red, and it giveth his color in the cup, that is, literally, its eyes are sparkling, so there's a shine to it. There's something about how it looks apart from the color that makes a person say that it looks delicious, and I would like to have a taste of it. And then when he has a taste of it, it moveth itself aright, which is actually to say it goes down so smoothly that you say to yourself, well, it looked beautiful, and it went down smoothly, and it still looks beautiful, so more will also go down smoothly, and it looks beautiful yet, what's left? Maybe if I drink the whole bottle, it will go down smoothly, and I have been deceived by the properties of the wine. Put yourself, beloved, in the Garden of Eden and understand that this is exactly what led to the first sin on the part of Eve. Satan coming to her and saying, do you see how this looks? Can you imagine how this tastes? Do you understand why a God would put that off limits, that fruit? It looks so good. It will surely be good for food. It will nourish your body. And Eve actually agreed, yeah, God must not really understand. What should be on off limits and what should not be off limits? Are you going to be like Eve? Everyone who drinks to intoxication is. What is there about the wine, though? Its earthly properties make me drink it more and more. But what is there about it? Well, the next verse tells us that at the last, you've gone through this process of looking at the beautifulness of the wine and the deliciousness of it, and drinking it, and it went down smoothly, and at the last it biteth like a serpent, and stingeth like an adder. For the one who looks at the wine when it is red, and moveth itself aright, forgets what its goal is, what the end of the process is. It will bite 
and it will sting. At the very least, the bite of a serpent and the sting of an adder hurts. And it's a very painful hurt, one that doesn't quickly go away. At the most, if it does not merely hurt, it kills. And that is the end of the process of giving oneself over to wine. Wine is deceptive this way, but it's deceptive exactly the way a serpent and an adder would be deceptive, saying, perhaps, if you have a pet scorpion or a pet serpent, I'll be your pet. You feed me. You feed me, I'll be nice to you. And then when that boa constrictor constricts itself around you and takes your life, and you're saying, but pet boa, you said you'd be nice to me. He looks at you and says, you believe that? You were that foolish? And that's wine and beer. It looked good. It tasted good. More tasted good too. But in the end, you really thought I had your best interests in mind? Why can the Holy Spirit personify this? Why can it present wine as a thing that stings? Here's the answer. Because Satan is working in it and through it. And he knows what he's doing. Therefore, there are consequences. We'll notice the spiritual consequences in verse 33. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. To behold strange women is always a danger to a male. That is, every man, at least almost every man, has to acknowledge that he finds women attractive and that given an opportunity, were he a man of the world and a man without morals, he would freely give himself over to as many women as he possibly could. So what is there about being drunk that makes the Holy Spirit bring this up when it's a danger to us apart from drunkenness? And the answer is twofold. In the first place, it has to do with the company you keep. Usually those who are willing to get drunk will find themselves in the company of others, especially one now who's going to go to the bar, go to a restaurant's bar, go to a uh, establishment exclusively devoted to selling of alcohol and get drunk there. You find yourself among like company. They aren't seeking to live out of the power of the Holy Spirit either. And in the second place, wine and beer and alcohol reduces the inhibitions that takes away, as we said earlier, the new man's strength, the new man's power to fight against sin and leaves the old man saying, why not? That's what I'm here for. I'm an old man of sin. And therefore, thine eyes shall behold strange women. In the second place, verse 33 says, regarding the spiritual consequences, that thine heart shall utter perverse things. Every one of us, to one degree or another, has thought things that we never spoke, that we never carried out with our hands or feet, that were deeply, even grossly sinful. There may have been things in which we criticized God for governing creation and history the way He does. There may have been moments when we frankly expressed our old man's opinion about God's word or some doctrine in that word. And we understood that I'd better not say that. To say that could get me in trouble. Well, a drunk person's ready to say it. He'll say what's on his mind. He'll say what's in his heart. So that, brothers and sisters in Christ, if you ever find yourself 
to be one who has given yourself over to drunkenness. And the elders are visiting you saying that while drunk you blaspheme the holy name of God. You spoke sinfully against perhaps the holy sacraments or the holy word. Don't say to them, you didn't mean to, but frankly acknowledge that while you were drunk, whatever thoughts were in your heart came out. Thine heart shall utter perverse things. This is a reason why a person with whom an elders are working, charging that one with sin for the sin of being drunk, might simply say, we're working with so-and-so who commits the sin of drunkenness, but they could also say, by the way, he's been guilty of sin against the first and the third and the sixth and the ninth. And you say to yourself, boy, are they piling it on? And the answer is no. Probably not. Most likely not. This is what drunkenness leads to. There's not only the spiritual consequences, but there are the physical consequences. Verse 29 already spoke of them. Verse 34 and the first part of 35 does as well. Here I'm going to be extremely brief. Thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. And what you have here is both the nausea, the seasick feeling that comes to one who's drunk, as well as the loss of of judgment and perception. Imagine being on a ship and being the one who has to climb the mast so you're in the lookout point way high above the deck and it's a stormy sea so that the soldier, the, the sailors on the deck as the ship is rocking are having a hard time not getting seasick and you in the mast are feeling the effects all the more. Nausea. It's not pleasant. And you brought it on yourself. There's also the first part of the verse, he that lieth down in the midst of the sea. It could be that the both parts of verse 35 are really saying the same thing, but I think not. I think verse 34, its first part, he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, is referring now to the, soul, the sailor who says, I'm tired. I want to take a nap. I think I'll go to sleep. Well, the deck of the ship is a pretty hard surface, and I want a soft bed. Look at the water. It looks so soft. I'll go lie in the water. And losing all sense of perception, commits himself to the sea as if that will be a nice, soft water bed, only to find that because of his lack of perception, he drowns. And there's a reason why. The state gets this point. You don't drink and then drive. The state doesn't say don't drink. It says if you're going to drink, be sure you don't drive. The child of God says, I'd better not drink to excess. There are physical consequences. Verse 35 in the first part speaks of them again. They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. We've referred to that earlier with the, the redness of eyes, the wounds without cause. Now we come to the last part of verse 35. This is the last aspect of the folly of drunkenness that the text brings up. And that is this. That when the drunkard has all this misery... He says to himself, this isn't fun. When shall I awake? And you say, if you're looking at that man, that's a good question. When shall I awake? He wants to be done with this. He hates it. He sees what a fool he is. And then he says, no. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. I want it. The whole reason I want to be sober is so that I can begin the process all over. And it's at that point that I say to you, beloved, 
Is that not each one of us? Is that not each one of us with regard to our besetting sins? Whether it's drunkenness or not. We enjoyed it. We do it again. Except by the grace of God, filled with the wisdom from above, we say, no, I need to fight and hate that sin. Having set forth the five verses of the text that deal with the folly of drunkenness, three big picture points very briefly. In the first place, the folly of drunkenness is both bodily and spiritual. I said the world gets the bodily part. It will create and fund programs for a person to enter so that they can work through their tendency to drunkenness. It will say don't drink and drive. So if the world gets the effect on the body and on the psyche, does the church not get the effect on the soul? What was set forth in chapter was a spiritual as well as a physical effect. In the second place, I said in the introduction that the text presents the folly of drunkenness so graphically, it's as if the Holy Spirit is making a laughing stock of this person. And for all intents and purposes, that's what the description of the text is meant to do. Look at that fool. Not that we should then laugh in a mocking way, because there's a reminder of what we would be except by the grace of God, but may that in the Holy Spirit impress on us by beholding that laughing stock what fully, what folly drunkenness is. In the third place, there's one word in the text I haven't done enough justice to yet, and it's the word shall. The Holy Spirit is presenting all of these effects or consequences of drunkenness as certain realities. So I'm going to come back to anyone, young or old, who says, all right, good to be aware of what the dangers are. I can go up to, or I can control. It won't happen to me. Yes, that might be 99.9% .9 of the people. I'm the 0.1%. And there aren't just a few drunkards. There's a good number of them who convince themselves this is this is the blindness of sin and of drunkenness, that they are the exception. The Holy Spirit doesn't say you could. You might behold strange women. Your heart might utter perverse things. You might be as somebody who loses all sense of judgment and is nauseous. You will. There is no escaping that. And therefore, beloved, Is this your sin? I don't know you. I know your names. If there's even one in this audience who struggles with this sin, I do not know of it. But an audience of this size, in the culture in which we live, it's likely that more than one does. And maybe a number of people know about one, and maybe another is so hidden that only the immediate family knows yet. But I ask you, is this your sin? Do you see what the Holy Spirit is saying to you? Hate it. Turn from it. And the first step is acknowledging your powerlessness to do so. I understand that too. Only the Holy Spirit can give you that. But now because you recognize that you need help. And you need the help of the Holy Spirit through godly people. Will you seek out those who will truly help you? Will you do it tonight? Will you do it tomorrow? Tonight you can call an elder or your pastor. Tomorrow you can call 
a facility that helps people overcome dependence on alcohol or other drugs. If you wait till Tuesday, you're saying, when shall I await? I will seek it yet again. And if it's your wife telling you, and she's the only one telling you yet, don't think she's the overreactive one. But understand that through her, God is speaking to you and seek help. Secondly, we are wealthy people. We're in a culture of Christians who don't say we shouldn't use wine at all. There are some Christians who do that. We might say they made a rule that goes beyond what the Scripture allows, but they're working to guard against a sin. We'll bear that in mind, won't we? We're not of that number. And all the more it forces us to ask the question, are we fathers saying to our sons and daughters, my son, give me thine heart and let thine eyes observe my ways. Which is to say, are we setting the example? Or is the drunkenness of our children going to find that it stems back to a parent who even if you wouldn't say was drunk, still it was too often present and too readily used? Do we know our limit? And I don't want to present worldly wisdom now, as in you figuring out your limit from that viewpoint. I want to say it quite this way, though. If it takes five drinks for one person to get drunk, it might take only one for another. But if it takes five drinks for one person to get drunk, then four is not your limit. One or two. Do you know, when you sit down to dinner, when you have a feast at Thanksgiving, when you go to a wedding and wine is, and, and alcohol is served, do you say to yourself, before you start, this is all I'll have, this is all I'll need, I can do this much to the glory of God, but I will not be brought under the power of it. Thirdly, with regard to your besetting sin, do you say, I need the grace of God? There is in the text an admonition to wisdom, for folly has a contrast, and wisdom is that contrast. The admonition is explicit in our text, and that's sort of striking. The latter part of the book of Proverbs, the last seven or so chapters, the, the Proverbs contain commands, but in much of the book of Proverbs, they didn't contain commands. They were just a statement and another statement. Sometimes the two statements related. Sometimes the two statements were contrasts, but always implied, not stated explicitly, was a command. Don't be foolish, but be wise. But in our text, it's explicit. Look thou not upon the wine, when it is read. Understand what's going on here. And if it requires you not to have it in the house, and therefore not to look on it that way, then don't have it in the house. But if you have it in the house, and you say, I can use it in moderation, understand what Satan wants to do, and be guarding against him. The admonition is negative. Look not thou. As is much of the Ten Commandments negative, because the Holy Spirit says, I know your heart. I know your nature. And so this is forbidden. And then implied in the negative is a positive. Be wise. Live out of the power of the Holy Spirit himself. And now I'm going to bring you again to your Lord Jesus Christ, who we saw earlier in the sermon was a perfect righteousness, and therefore could save. But now I'm going to bring you to your Lord Jesus Christ, who gives us in the gospel 
everything that truly satisfies the soul. Uh, the one who says, but I'm going to seek wine or beer or a marijuana joint is saying, there's a happiness I'm looking for apart from Christ. In order to bring you to him that way, I'm going to bring you to Proverbs 9. We'll stay in the same book. In verses 4 and following, Christ calls the simple. Whoso is simple, let him turn in hither. As for him that wanteth understanding, she, that she is wisdom, uh, used the, the feminine pronoun is used, but the reference is to wisdom as Christ. She saith to him, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine which I have mingled. Now where? I'm going to put it sort of crassly just a moment. Where is the bakery and where is the brewery? Of Jesus Christ? And the answer is he certainly doesn't have an earthly bakery and an earthly brewery. His bread and his wine is not a reference to some earthly material substance, but it does refer to all that he gives us based on his shed body and broken body and shed blood, to all of the joys and blessings of salvation that he sets before us in the gospel and gives us by the Holy Spirit, in which he says to us, the love of Jehovah God for you, let that soothe your anxieties and let that be what enables you to deal with your fears and your worries. The love of God for you in Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. The hope of heaven, let that be your longing. Let that be what motivates you in the troubles of life, in the, the burdens of life, in which you might turn to some substance that does not satisfy. Understand the love of God is complete and it is sufficient. You're looking for happiness. The gospel gives it. Isn't that Lord's Day 1? Your only comfort. There weren't two comforts. The one beer gave and the one that Christ gave. Your only comfort is that you belong to Jesus Christ. Now when we partake of the bread that Christ prepares and drink of the wine that he has mingled, we find a happiness for the soul. Instead of an attempt at some earthly happiness, a true, deep, lasting happiness happiness. We find that we don't have pain in the body, at least not because I ran into this and I fell over and I broke my leg. We might have pains in the body yet, but they're not due to our own folly and drunkenness. And even when we have those pains, we say, but my body belongs to my Lord and Savior and he's preparing me for heaven. One day my body will be free of pain and trouble. We will not behold strange women when we eat of the bread and drink of the wine that Christ has mingled, but we will behold his bride, the church of Jesus Christ, and say of her, she is beautiful. And to each godly man who's been given a wife, he will say of her, she is the one the Lord has provided, and I receive her with joy and gladness. We will not utter perverse things when we eat of the bread that Christ has baked and drink of the wine that he has mingled. But we will sing the praises of God now and to all eternity. We will tarry long, not with wine, but with God himself, and say, he is enough. I need nothing more. The ungodly seek wine and women. In the church of Jesus Christ, we, sinners by nature and still having that old man in us, are prone to think there might be some happiness in wine and women. The wise say, it isn't so. In Christ and in Christ alone, I find both my happiness, my power to endure when life is hard, and the power to live under the service 
of my God. And in that, I find a spiritual intoxication. The wise hear. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, give us the wisdom to take to heart and apply what we've been taught to the honor and the glory of thy name, such that the youth among us have no desire to give themselves over to these sins. And even as they're gathered together as a group, would speak to and admonish one who suggested it. Give us wisdom as old people, as parents and grandparents, such that we also teach, admonish, and set an example. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.